This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. This episode is all about the investing climate around the globe, from tailwinds and headwinds facing the asset management industry, to opportunities remaining for emerging markets, to the growth of ESG investing, and much, much more. From London today, we're joined by Sheila Patel, Chief Executive Officer of International Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Sheila, welcome to the program. Welcome back to the program. Thanks, Jake. Last time you were on, back in early 2017, you talked about your conversations with clients all around the world following President Trump's election. Fill us in on how those discussions have evolved over the past year and a half of this administration, particularly in light of the trade tensions and all the geopolitical uncertainty we've witnessed. Well, it's been a long year for clients, I'll say that, since we last spoke. I think really what's happened is concerns have become more concrete. If the last time we spoke, people wondered what might happen, now people are still wondering, but they can point a finger at some more specifics. They're worried about trade tensions. They're worried about how it impacts global markets. They've seen that even noise about some of these issues ends up creating disturbances in places where they've found value up to this point, such as emerging markets. And so the action we're seeing is certainly not incredibly scared or dramatic, but it is much more focused on what the actual implications are of Trump's policies and overall of the global climate that seems to be a little less favorable towards globalization. Does that make it a little bit easier to model, though, at some level? Like, you know, what industries might be impacted or what regions might be impacted? I think people have tried. I think the issue is you can imagine what industries will be impacted, but the scope of trade issues that are mentioned versus the reality of action is where people find a challenge. You hear $200 billion, but maybe there's only action on $50 billion. You hear about a real rift between the U.S. and Europe, for example, but then there's a meeting in Washington that seems a bit more conciliatory. And so it's a challenge for people to really pinpoint and focus because I think there's still some hope that the noise you hear is really about some renegotiations or realignments or shifts rather than a wholesale disruption to global trade. So beyond, and it's a big beyond, but beyond geopolitical uncertainty, Mm -hmm. beyond trade tensions, what kind of challenges are facing your clients who are investing in the investment industry more generally? Mm -hmm. Look, I think the basic issues and challenges that clients have are still there. We still have a very low-yield environment. And many of the largest institutional investors in the world are representing pools of assets that have traditionally been mainly in fixed income. And so with that kind of environment, where do they go for return? In many cases, they had gone to emerging markets. That's obviously been a harder place to be in the first half of this year. So that's another concern, although we saw a pickup in July, which we can discuss. And then there are some broader issues. How should they think about technology? both as a creator of value in terms of investing, but also as a challenge and a disruption to the way that they might interact with their stakeholders or the way their businesses might evolve if you're running a pension or thinking about D.C. and how you interact with those stakeholders. And lastly, they're dealing with new issues. ESG a few years ago was only a thought that might have an implication for a portion of your portfolio. Today, for most clients, there's a real question as to how they can implement those kind of views much more broadly. Let's circle back to a couple of those issues, starting with emerging markets. Given the recent volatility, is there still opportunity left in emerging markets at this point in time? And what are smart investors thinking about right now? 
Well, I think emerging markets are still an opportunity for investors, both in the debt and the equity space. Really what you've seen in the first part of the year in terms of deterioration in the equity space, and it's the first time EM has underperformed developed markets since 2016, is a deterioration in the PE and also you know, the FX challenges that the emerging markets have faced. But if you look at dividends or you look at earnings, EM has still continued to deliver. Is it mostly concerns. a dollar strength story? or There's a dollar strength story, but really that PE multiple is indicating a little bit of that transmission of the concerns mm -hmm. about trade. But when you dig into the nitty-gritty, you really can find opportunities because it is not a homogeneous marketplace. There are differences between countries. There are differences in terms of the domestic orientation of certain parts of emerging markets versus others. India is a very domestically-led story, so a trade tension issue is not as much of a problem for them. High commodity prices might be a problem, so there are many nuances. And it's led to a very active style in EM being preferred, but that activism also leads one to try to look for those themes and extract value from them. When you look at EMD, you've had some similar challenges from things like the FX moves, but also from the idiosyncratic nature of some of what's gone on in certain countries and from the concerns over the trade side and from what you've seen in U.S. activity, concerns over rate hikes, etc. But again, in EMD, we finally started to see inflows in July. And I think the reason for that is you found some value. Value, yeah. Well, yeah. that's the flip side. It's so been the first time that sovereign debt spreads have surpassed U.S. high yield spreads in quite a while mm -hmm. in dollar sovereign in debt. Dollars. And so that's value for people, and they come back. So one group of clients that you spend a lot of time with and have for years is sovereign wealth funds. And for a long time, I think most sovereign wealth funds were considered a little opaque and mysterious. But have you noticed a shift in how they're operating and basically how they think about what their objectives are? Well, it's such an interesting space because on the one hand, you have some institutions that have been around for decades, 30 plus years in Asia and the Middle East and to some extent in the U.S. and Europe. And you also have institutions that are forming right now, new institutions. I think across the board, what you've seen go on is an increase in transparency, a realization that the level of concern about their actions or what they might be doing could lead to a potential distrust or disruption of their activities. And so I think you see from the both experienced sovereign wealth investors to the newest institutions, a greater focus on transparency on their objectives, thought processes around where they'll be investing and what they want to do in terms of making those investments more public, a conscious belief that in many cases, there will be ESG demands from their stakeholders. And so the issues around governance or what they invest in and why have become much more important. Everybody's approaching it a bit differently, but I think really the lens being focused on that space has really upped the ante on that front. Some of the biggest and most sophisticated sovereign wealth funds for a long time have done some direct investing, mm -hmm. but are you starting to see that be more widespread? Absolutely. And that's really part and parcel with what you're seeing about private markets overall. First of all, from a returns perspective, private markets have been the place that many of those institutions have derived their best returns, the same in the pension space. And then secondly, you're seeing companies stay private for longer. 45% of corporate earnings in the U.S. are coming from private companies. And you don't want to miss out on that level of activity by being limited to the public market. So direct investing is a way in. Direct investing is also a way for these institutions to make sure that they're at the cutting edge of some of these spaces in the technology space especially, but it's also healthcare. And there's two angles. 
There's the question of what's the most cutting edge or what are the newest opportunities. Then there's also the question of what can that sovereign wealth fund bring back to the home country in terms of that expertise that might be applied. You mentioned the formation of new sovereign wealth funds. Where are we seeing new activity in that space? Both in Asia and in the Middle East. You've seen some new institutions forming. And to some extent, it's really driven by the activity that's been in EM, more cash going towards companies, private stakes or government-held stakes being sold, and that driving funding for some new institutions. And then, as always, there's a portion of sovereign wealth funds that are driven by natural resources and commodities. And so some of those funds in certain EM countries are very new. Sheila, you mentioned ESG, or Environment, Social, and Governance Investing. That's been top of mind in the industry for a little while, but a bit niche. In your view, how is that conversation and the practice of ESG investing evolving today? Well, for example, Goldman Sachs Asset Management manages over $14 billion in dedicated ESG. That's money that's absolutely focused on specific ESG principles as defined by our dedicated portfolios. We also manage over $70 billion of portfolios with an ESG overlay or ESG considerations, where we work with the client to define and customize a portfolio to their specifications as their evolving view of ESG continues. There's a bit of a push and a pull in ESG. On the one hand, absolutely stakeholders globally are more interested. And whether you're in a country where you're concerned about clean air and you're asking the major institutions and investors, are you doing something about this? Are you reflecting the need for a good environment or concerns that we might have about climate change in the way you're investing our money, the money of your stakeholders. And then there's a pull as well, because I think what really has changed and evolved is the sense that is ESG about doing good or is it about returns? And there is more comfort from some proportion of the investing base that there's a returns-based reason that ESG makes sense, not just a do-good reason. And what are those reasons? Nobody really argues anymore about governance being important in terms of finding the best companies, getting the best returns. I think when you look at environmental and social, obviously there's always still more debate, but what's really interesting is the ways in which people are finding good return opportunities related to those two things. So whether it's improving healthcare via use of better technology, that also has a great implication from a social perspective, or whether it's improving crop yields and using resources more effectively, again, via using technology or smarter utilization and planning. Those are ways to both generate a return and improve the environment. So generating alpha and also responding to stakeholders. When you talk to those clients who are interested in either getting bigger in the space or just looking at their portfolio through that lens, what do they want from an investment advisor? When do they, they want product or <laughs> they want advice or both? Or Really, yeah. it's both. And, yeah. and it really depends how far along the institution is in their own definitions of these issues. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for example, GSAM manages about $14 billion more than that in dedicated ESG. And by that, I mean full-on, we want a dedicated ESG portfolio with very specific characteristics. But we also manage over $70 billion with ESG overlays or ESG considerations where a client has a specific investment objective, but they also give us a feeling of their list of criteria that they're concerned about for ESG, and we try to blend the two, work on it with them to evolve what that definition might be. Because it's such a space of change, Really, it's a place when people look to their asset managers, they're saying, what can you tell me? And let's debate together what the definition should be. Right. But a lot of bespoke product, frankly, in this Absolutely. Space. Yeah. A lot of bespoke product and a yeah. lot of investment in expertise, 
and growth of teams. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about private markets being a focus. How do you see the opportunities shifting with more demand for these private opportunities and these bigger pools of capital dedicated to it, especially in the tech space? Will that just drive companies to stay private longer, particularly the startup? I mean, we've already seen some of that. When you look at the private space, you can't ignore the amount of money that's been raised in that space. And I think that's probably what gives our investors and some of the largest institutional investors around the world a bit of a concern that maybe you'll see returns go down a bit. Maybe there's a challenge here because now that we've done well in this space, more people are entering it. Is it crowded? I think the offset to that actually is the hope that there are a lot of new areas to invest in. And the growth of a larger segment in the private side means that there does have some correlation. There is a correlation between the size of the money being put to work and the amount of money that can be put to work because more companies are staying private. Which is the cause and which is the effect? You could debate. So we don't go through a single podcast without talking about how technology is disrupting some industry one way or the other. So. How about the asset management industry? What role is technology playing in changing the way investors invest? I'm tremendously excited by technology and asset management, both in the ways it gives us opportunities and even in the ways it challenges us. I think from the opportunities perspective, we are at such a unique moment for combining the fundamental work that's been done really for decades in understanding companies, understanding industries, and combining that with the quantitative skill set that allows analysis of data in ways that the old school fundamental analysis, they could never could have imagined. They couldn't do imagined. it. You didn't, have the, you didn't it. have the computing power to right. do it. Right. They didn't have the computing power or the data or, or the time. Right. And if you think about today, the same store sales that people waited for in bated breath for retail to come out once a month. Now you could figure it out maybe on an hourly basis from credit card data or satellite feed, uh, parking parking lots, lots um, and so on. But also think about the ways in which new things can be optimized. I had mentioned crops and agriculture. There are incredible things being done in terms of utilizing land much more effectively via satellites and via drones. We could see improvements in spot pesticide versus wide-scale spraying of fields and so on, or recognition of areas that would be better for grazing for cattle than others. And the ways in which this technology is being implied and the people that are coming up with the best ways to do it will be alpha in future. On the flip side, the ways it's affecting our industries absolutely in the ways we interact with investors. If you think about robo-advising, if you think about the ways in which people expect to know what their portfolio is doing at any given time, ideally on their phone, at the same time as they check something else, maybe that's checking the portfolio a bit too often. A little too much. As long-term investors. It's, yeah, it's not considered, we uh, think it, it yeah, maybe not, not the be best, best practice, but it's hard to resist. It's hard to people. resist. Right. It's hard to resist. And I think we all have to adapt and adjust to the ways to make that the most effective, positive force for people saving their money, putting it to work in the best way, and generating the funds that they need to live the best lives they can. So with clients being able to see and watch what you're doing with their assets in real time, does that change the nature of the relationship? Does it mean you're in contact more, or are they still checking all the time but letting a long-term focus prevail? I think it's still evolving. And in general, they're letting long-term focus prevail. At the end of the day, the level of technology is really just leading to better understanding of risk. 
And that drives longer-term questions. That drives longer-term discussions and advice that we can help clients with as to whether they have views on trade policy, views on commodity prices, a realization that maybe across their whole portfolio they have more exposure to oil or more exposure to volatility in FX than they realize. And so the key is to find the ways that that data gives them the insights to build the best possible portfolio and asset allocation that they can. So, Sheila, over the past several years, really, more, more than that, the investment industry's really seen a big shift and rise in popularity of passive products. And it's been a difficult environment, especially with the correlation around in the wake of the financial crisis for active managers. How do you see the industry in that debate developing going forward? You know, if you go back to the 80s, there were great headlines that said equities were dead. And as soon as we were sure something was finished, sure enough, there was a whole new incarnation. I think that active versus passive debate has really moved on. And technology has disrupted the whole thing. The disruptor here is the question of how do we drive alpha for clients and how do clients use any product, whether it's passive or active, structurally to enhance their overall returns. That's why you see quantitative portfolios taking hold. That's why you see the creation of new products like smart beta over the last several years where people can get some of the best of both worlds. So I think the evolution here and the nuance here is so much deeper than the headline. And that's really where I see clients focused. We talked a little bit about robo-advising, but where mm -hmm. is that heading? Is it a generational thing or is that – I think there's a perception that it's popular with – young people who are just mm -hmm. beginning to get in the space, and it's a cheap way for them to get in. But are you starting to see that with institutional clients as well? Really not with institutional clients. The issue with robo-advising is we have a long way to go, and we certainly are working as well, on trying to make this the best tool set possible. But at the end of the day, really what you have to replicate is great advice. And if a robo-advisor is just about making it cheap advice or making it simple advice, that doesn't mean it's the best advice. So how do we make sure that the advice that's being generated by algorithms instead of an advisor is taking the best of the best of the thinking for that person? And there's so much that goes into it beyond just a mathematical formula of your age and where you live. Right. You're passionate about seeing other women succeed in finance. What are the keys to increasing the breadth and depth of women in this industry? It's really important we go from beginning to end. And so whether it's recruiting people and making people comfortable that this is a great industry to join, so spending time with people, we spend time with people as young as teenagers to try to tell them it's a great industry and there are ways in which from a measurement perspective, from an impact perspective, they can demonstrate their adding value and really have a great opportunity as a woman in the industry to thinking about people at different stages of their career, even people who took some time off or their own decisions from a family basis or for whatever reasons and want to come back. I think it's really about engaging women in the conversation. And I think it's essential because on the other side of the divide is also an incredible generational transfer that's about to happen to millennials and really because of demographics to many women. And knowing how to manage money and knowing how to think about a portfolio is something that requires a diverse set of thinkers. We want to have that at Goldman Sachs, but we also are covering the most diverse set of clients we ever have. Talk a little bit about that. How are people thinking about that challenge of passing on? There's this wealth that's accumulated with the generation that's beginning to move on. And what's the next generation looking for when it comes to this kind of advice? Well, certainly the next generation has a lot more concerns about ESG. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a tie-in to what we were just discussing. I think the next generation does expect great technology and access, 
but I do think there's also a question of education that they want to understand more and know more details about what is long-term thinking anyway and, and why is checking my portfolio every day online not necessarily the healthiest thing or when should I do it and when shouldn't I? Mm -hmm. One of the things that certainly from a generational perspective or an organizational perspective we look to invest in and we see clients look to invest in, especially some of the largest distributors and wealth managers we know in the world that cover and that serve millions of clients, is to try to think about that education component and make it not just about this is a solution, but how about the holistic view of why are we doing this in the first place? As you're talking to clients all around the world where the dialogue is slightly different, how are those clients thinking about the debate or the attention on these issues of gender equality? Well, it's really interesting, whether it's the number of movements we've seen, the issues we've seen from a corporate perspective at many companies with leadership suddenly being shown to have their own gender equality issues, or whether it's the, the question of the diverse perspectives they expect to see sitting across the table from them. We see much more interest in the topic from clients than ever before. They expect to see a diverse group of people sitting across the table from them. I had a client in Australia recently tell me that they walked out of a meeting where they had been with another manager for four hours and waited and waited and never saw a different face in that time. And so I think all aspects of diversity have become much more front and center for our clients. And we're excited to have a diverse team to put in front of them to bring them our best ideas. Yeah, I worked with a woman who ran M&A at a big corporate company, and if a bank showed up without a single woman in the team, she didn't hire them. So you were recently named a member of Goldman Sachs' management committee. Congratulations. Thank but you. that The management committee more or less runs the firm week in, week out, month in, month out. What have you found in your short time on the management committee, and how do you encourage other women to reach that point in their career? Well, of course, Jake, I'm super excited to have joined. And I find it an incredibly diverse, impressive group of leaders around the firm, and I'm honored to be part of it. When I think about sitting around that table and having the discussions that we have with Lloyd or with David and the rest of the group, really what I hope to bring to the table is a diverse perspective, not just from a gender perspective, but because of how much time I spend on the road, traveling, being in different countries all the time. The last two, three months, I've been, let's say, three months, 13 countries. And as you think about that and you think about the global client base that Goldman tries to serve, we're really about bringing the globe and connecting clients to each other and to the best opportunities. And so when I look at that group, when I think about what we can bring to the table, when I want to encourage more women to get involved, but all manner of diversity on that, I think the best way that Goldman Sachs goes into the next decades is by that group representing our clients, and our clients are more diverse than ever. Well, Sheila, that's a good note to close on. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Jake. We hope you come back again soon. Uh, you can be our most frequent visitor. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on August 2nd, 2018. The views and opinions expressed herein should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities, and such views and opinions may differ from those of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research or other departments or divisions of Goldman Sachs and its affiliates. This information may not be current, and Goldman Sachs has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. 
Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Goldman Sachs entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity. No part of this podcast may, without GSAM's prior written consent, be reproduced, redistributed, published, copied, or duplicated in any form by any means.